0: Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining today's ARW Los Angeles Las Vegas six section uh, town hall meeting uh, right before the uh, Christmas. And uh, today we have a very uh, uh, distinguished speaker and very uh, exciting topic. It is going to be fun. So we uh, encourage you to have, uh, uh, to enjoy the meeting and have a very interactive, interesting conversation. Uh, But before we start the program, uh, just uh, some announcement. Uh, For folks online, uh, if you have any question, please click raise hand on Zoom and uh, wait for uh, speaker to get ready. uh, Or it's better at the end do a Q&A. But if the speaker doesn't mind, uh, you can ask a question in in between. Uh, But please respect the speaker's uh, uh, pace of presentation. Uh, He has prepared very fantastic slides. Uh, so uh, it's good you enjoy it first. Uh, if you want to type in QA, a that's fine, but then the, uh, the priority will be lower because people cannot hear you directly, but we'll do our best. Uh, you can put also in chat for networking, but uh, it's better you can speak out your question. Please click raise hand to get a microphone access. Uh, for folks online here, we have this beautiful Longdale Library, uh, really appreciate uh it's really fantastic it's a very nice room um and then the restroom is right outside of this entrance uh, if the librarian didn't see you you have to wave hand uh to them so they can open the door because it's locked uh they can uh, click and they can open the door for you um officially there should be no food uh, in this room if you have any trash please on uh, outside library entrance there's a trash can um there's also water fountain over there um and if you're really really hungry you need coffee across street just 30 seconds walking there's a corner uh corner burger uh and coffee and uh hamburger if you want and uh, the other thing is uh because we only have one microphone this is for the speaker so the speaker can repeat the question but actually the microphone is on the tv regularly if you speak out uh people online should be able to hear you so it shouldn't be a problem but if there's a uh they cannot hear you um folks online especially charlie bono uh, uh, colonel bruno charlie please let us know you cannot hear us and we'll do the best using the microphone uh so a few words about anyway e- i'm talking about trying to wait for more people to join online um anyway e- as you know it's a non-profit organization uh, uh, also professional society, so we have journals, uh, books, uh, for people to write articles, papers, and public, public books. And uh, we also have national conferences like ASCEND uh, in the summer next year, will be combined with um, aviation. Also SciTech is January 8th to January 12th, just right after the new year, that's a national event. Uh, for the local chapter, after this one, uh, the next town hall meeting presentation is going to be January 20th, uh, which will be in the same Longdale long Library for hybrid event, and talking about the first two decades of human space flight. Uh, and then followed by January 27 uh, by Michelle Evans uh, about the very uh, uh, inspiring and a very uh, sad story about Mike Adams and the story of the pioneers for X50. So we have more events coming up, but uh, we will announce it gradually. Um, so I think it's gradually to the schedule. So our speaker today, uh, Mr. Ren Simberg, is a very experienced aerospace professional. Uh, you already saw his uh, bio online, so I don't want to repeat everything, but just some highlight. Uh, he used to be a manager, um, project manager in Rockwell International uh here in the uh in dummy and uh, he also work uh work at uh, aerospace corporation here in los Segundo. uh he is expert uh, in this uh, space transportation orbital transfer uh space tether and lunar resource utilization and um they, they turn on he moved uh um uh, move on to a career for being a book author speaker freelancer and uh, he is the founder and president of this uh, uh, company. Uh, very interesting called the, uh, in inter space science. Uh, so you'll hear a lot from, uh, from, from the speaker today. Uh, so it's a great opportunity. We can learn from, uh, speakers expertise and the years, long years, so experience and this opinion, uh, which is very vital for, um, uh, all the space activity right now. Uh, as you can see, this man space is going to test again for Starship. and uh, Subotic is going to launch their first, um, ever for America to get back to the moon uh, after Apollo 17. So it's a very exciting time, but at the same time, there are a lot of things to consider. Uh, so our speaker today will explain to us. So without further ado, let's welcome uh, Mr. Ren Simberg.
1: Thank you, Ken. Uh, you're probably wondering about the title slide. Uh, why it says the book is by me, but the presentation is by Stephen Fleming. Uh, this is actually a 10-year-old presentation, and it was put together by Steve Fleming, who is uh, at the time was doing a commercialization, a technology commercialization at Georgia Tech, and he's currently doing the same thing at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Uh, but he put this together for DragonCon in 2014, and so it's not really an engineering degree. It's more for lay audiences, uh, you know, not, not a lot of charts, and graphs, or anything like that. I do have a few that after this presentation that I will show uh, to talk about some of the more specific engineering issues. Might need to turn it a little or something. I'm not sure. Yep. Okay. Uh, Back uh, So, a little history of how the book happened. I, I, I call it an accidental book. Uh, I started a pro- I was very concerned about this time uh, about NASA's risk aversion in terms of how safety is the highest priority. And we passed the, I uh, uh, forget the name, of the uh, CSLA, Commercial Space Launch Act amendments in 2004, specifically. Sort of to allow commercial human space flight. Uh, and, and at that point, at, the first, at first we had what we called a learning period before, so FAA wouldn't be regulated uh, for safety. They were very concerned that they really didn't know how to do that. Uh, and in fact, uh, that, that learning period has been extended several times. The idea was that we would get some experience, and then at some point they would have enough experience where they could say, Here the, here's how we should design these vehicles. But uh, things didn't happen for a long time. Uh, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic were long delayed. Uh, they didn't. They really only in the last few years started to fly with any kind of regularity, and it's not really. It's still very very rare that they fly. So we still haven't. We haven't learned or, or done as much as we anticipated when we. And I was involved in helping draft that legislation when we when we first set that up in 2004, and. Uh, and define what suborbital so meant. Uh, but the main thing was to say that, yes, FAA will continue to be responsible as it was with uncrewed launch uh, to make sure that the safety of the public is safe, uh, will ensure the safety of uninvolved third parties. But they don't do mission assurance on satellites, and they don't do SNMA, uh, safety mission assurance, on, on human spaceflight. So, I, but I was concerned at that time that NASA's uh, risk aversion was going to bleed over into the commercial industry. So I decided to start writing about it and trying to make to get some of the message par- across that we have to accept risk or we're not going to make progress. And I think uh, SpaceX has certainly shown that, that Elon is a, he is a risk taker, and he's moved very rapidly to change the world. So, so I actually did a Kickstarter, and I raised, I think I might have raised more than this, but that was a, a kind of a snapshot in time. Uh, I raised money so I could pay myself to take time off to write the book. And uh, the contributors got a free book. So any kind of new form of transportation is dangerous. And In fact, I don't, I don't know if people are aware of this, but Magellan started out, in Seville when he went around the world with five ships. He came back with one and he didn't come back with it. Just one, one lived into Seville with a skeleton crew after the trip all the way around the world. Uh, Magellan was killed in a battle in the Philippines. And in fact, uh, the first person to circumnavigate the earth was this navigator who was from the Philippines. He had actually gone west to Europe and then he, got, then he navigated from Magellan so when he got to the Philippines, he was the first person to actually turn all the way around the world. But the point is, uh, most of the expeditions lost. And that was just the way it was back then. There were all kinds of things that could go wrong at sea. And, and all of them did, they had mutinies. They, you know, they had, had to deal with the uh, uh, pirates and other things. doesn't want to move. Oh, that. And I just described uh, what happened to Jill. So any new form of transportation until we really learn how to do it, people are going to uh, be injured and they're going to die. We went out west, a lot of The settlers didn't make it. And then we started using uh, steam for transportation. And it started out with with the the steamboats, and then later, the railroads. And then we got the automobile. We kept on coming up with new ways to kill ourselves in order to get around. And you know this this has resulted, of course, in a lot of regulations. Now we have traffic signals, we have stop signs, we have speed limits, we have all these things. We have we have regulations about you know, how how cars brakes should perform, you know how they should be designed, how much redundancy they should have. But in order to learn about all those things, you have to go through experience. This is actually James Dean's car. This is the first time I've ever, ever actually seen. Uh, I've driven by there many times. It's, it's uh, east of uh, the name of the town, but it's up on up the central coast. And he was driving a, a Corvette, crashed into a tree. So, and even now, we still have auto accidents. And of course, then we started to fly. We we did the airmail for a while, and the government was doing it, and eventually they shut it down because too many pilots are dying, but then it it became privatized. But it really did provide a good market to help develop aviation in the beginning. So this is sort of the history here. You fly only in completely safe conditions, which means there's a lot of times you're not going to fly. Just as today, but a lot of times you don't launch because the condition of the weather is not right. And then we had this. Uh, people think that the Hindenburg caused the death of the airship business, but it was on its way out anyway because airplanes were getting so much more efficient and better and faster. Uh, so, an interesting fact about the Hindenburg. People think that people that people died and were burned from the hydrogen, uh, when in fact it was from the diesel and the engines. The hydrogen just goes up. And it didn't really, uh, didn't affect people on the ground or in the, or even in the vehicle. And then we had rapid advancements, of course, with the war. Uh, we were cranking out new designs. I think the P-51 was developed in something like going from, Drawing board to the first flight, in some ridiculously short amount of time. It's less than a year, I think. And then we learned how to do it on ships, and a lot of people died doing that. Not not just uh, the pilots, but the ground crews, the deck crews. And we only really learned how to do it relatively safely in the 1980s, when they came out with the uh, the Hornet and the Tomcat. So that's the number of people who died in non-combat from when we first started flying jets off that's until we we got the the new era, the F-14, the F-18. In the, in the 80s. So uh, the point is that when something's important, you're willing to risk lives. And clearly, this was this is national security. And when even during Apollo, well, for Apollo. In fact, we just said we're going to have a speaker next month on, on the X-15 in Mike Adams, who's buried up in the desert. And this was a program that uh, didn't survive. And then we lost three people in the Apollo fire because it was important to get to the moon. And they made some mistakes which were, in retrospect, were obvious they shouldn't have had a, a full uh, atmosphere, gear oxygen cabin. And the ironic thing is it probably wouldn't, they would have been OK if they'd been in space because it would have been much lower pressure. So it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been as uh, volatile a situation. Recording
2: in progress.
1: And this this is uh, the aftermath of the fire in, in the capsule. And the three men who died: Shira, uh, Chaffee, and Chris. Uh, Not in that order. So Apollo Six was. Uh, didn't fly anybody, but it was the first flight of the Apollo, of of the Saturn V, and it was a disaster, so they lost engines, they had Pogo, they had structural damage, but they sat down, they looked at the telemetry, and they figured out uh, what all went wrong, and they figured out how to fix it. So, then we had Apollo 7, and they had issues on that, but then on Apollo 8, which was really the very next flight uh, after after the disaster of the first one. Uh, they sent men all the way and around. They didn't land because they didn't have the lander yet. That was going to be a few months later. But this was was uh, 68. It was 55 years ago, Christmas. And the point is, NASA could not do that mission today. It just was too, but it had been deemed too risky. Uh, in fact, uh, the administrator resigned, but he didn't want to do it. And Tom Paine came in and he said, yeah, let's, let's do this. Because they, were, they knew, they were afraid that the Soviets were going to beat them. And they'd already flown animals around the moon on the own. And they were, they were concerned that they'd lost so many firsts to the Soviets. The Soviets had first man in space, first, first satellite in space, first man in space, first dog in space, first, in space, first EDA. First two people in space. Uh, they've been beating us at everything. Uh, and, and this was really, uh, we figured, everything's ready to go except we don't have a lander. Well, let's just fly around and moon and, and we can beat the Soviets to doing that. And they did. And then we started to land. And, in fact, we really won the race with Apollo 8. If people think it was, it was Apollo 11, that's when we actually did what we said we were going to do. But the, the, the Soviets quit racing after Apollo 8 and after the M1 blew up. On the they didn't. And then they started pretending they hadn't been racing. But that was that was when when we really won. But on that first flight, that first um, crewed flight, you know, Neil and Buzz thought they had maybe a 50% chance getting back. And then we had Apollo 13, and Apollo 13, we were very lucky not to take anything away from all the daring do and the brilliant things that they did uh, to get the crew home. But they were lucky. If it had happened on the way back from the moon, if that tank, oxygen tank, had exploded in the in the command module on the way back, they would have died because they wouldn't have had the lamp as a backup. And if that was the point where they really decided, we got to quit doing this, or we're going to kill somebody. And that's where the risk aversion really started. Of course, then we had uh, people died on the ground. Most people forget, but uh, three people died uh, when they were operating in a pure nitrogen environment, and they didn't realize it. So they basically asphyxiated and didn't realize it because you don't, you know, your body doesn't recognize uh, that you're not getting oxygen. It can re- it recognizes if you're getting too much carbon dioxide. That's that's what creates the suffocation, the reflex. But if you're breathing pure nitrogen, you just, of course, you get nitrogen narcosis, which is very, getting getting high basically. But divers do sometimes rest from the deep, and then you die. In fact, they just, and I've always wondered for years why they didn't do this they just started using this as an execution method, where they just put an oxygen, a nitrogen mask on somewhere. I think they're doing it in Alabama. Of course, uh, it's like most of us are old enough to remember, Challenge. It was 40-some years ago. Uh, I was actually in Downey, working at Rockwell that morning, and we had, uh, <laughs> it, there was a kickoff of a of a meeting between the Air Force and NASA and us. We were one of the contractors for these new, uh, what they call the space transportation architecture study, which is to, uh, there's been an ongoing uh, battle fight between the Air Force and Marshall Space Flight Center about what the next vehicle should be, what was supposed, what was supposed to come after shuttle. So basically the, the White House said, said not heads together, said you guys get together and do a study, have, have industry do a study and figure it out so uh, we had not had a contract, uh, Boeing had one, uh, I think General, General Dynamics did. Uh, so, anyway, this is a kickoff meeting on the morning of January 28th, 1986. we had a kickoff meeting at Don for and one of my colleagues came running in, you know, as they were getting it, about to get started. If you ever heard the expression white as a sheet, he came in, he said, "Soda to I just saw a Challenger explode. He, he was coming from the mission control room and over in building six. And you could kind of see the news move through the room. People started getting up and going to find phones because they didn't have cell phones at the time. They had to find a phone to call, you know, Florida or Texas or, or Alabama and say, start making ranch flights, go home. But, you know, that was. Uh, a remarkable confluence of events that caused that. It's it's often it's, you know the shuttle is a very highly complex, tightly coupled system, and those are very prone to catastrophic failure. And if, if just one, it was kind of like the same thing was true of the Titanic or the Donner part. If they just done one thing right, they would have been okay, but they did everything wrong. And in this with the shuttle. If the weather hadn't been so cold, or if the uh, if that leak in the joint hadn't uh, gone and uh, flared, they put that uh, torch on the strut where it did. If they hadn't had the winds aloft, uh, if any one of those things hadn't happened, it would have been okay, and we might have flown quite a while longer, not realizing that the shuttle was in fact a very unreliable vehicle. Nothing. Okay. Okay. And there that's the picture the iconic picture like everybody saw. And it was like the worst possible mission for that to occur. Because it had the school teacher on board. Because everybody said it's safe enough to fly a school teacher. And every So all so you know, millions of kids, school kids were watching it happened live. So probably traumatized the generation. And again, this is what contributes down to NASA's risk aversion. You know, they don't want that to, they didn't want that to happen again. But it did happen again. And when Columbia came in, uh, I should say, we used to look at the we had all the fall trees, and everything could go wrong with the shuttle down downey and, and we calculated what is the reliability? What are the odds? If we're going to lose one. And they were much higher than NASA liked to say publicly. But you couldn't really criticize the shuttle in any way, because because and it, even among management at Rockwell, you couldn't really do that. They were Apollo veterans who developed this thing, and if you told them there's was a problem with the shuttle, it was like you know, telling a uh, parent that their kid is ugly. But we knew that there was a there was a very high risk that we were going to lose one, and but we never predicted. You know, we we figured an engine is going to blow up or lose tiles or you know there are lots of potential failures but we didn't anticipate the weird string of events that led to the loss of of challenger this one we did predict that you can have some damage some structural damage to the tiles you don't have integrity for entry and the vehicle burns up and at that point that they decided they had to cancel the program finally but the thing that people don't understand is that we didn't cancel shuttle because it killed people. we actually had lots of astronauts. There's no, there no shortage of astronauts. There's lots of people who are willing to be astronauts, even if they think the risk of dying is high. People are like that. And if they think something's important, they're willing to do it. Uh, we, but we couldn't keep flying shuttle because we only had five of them. And then we had four. And then we had three. And we didn't have tooling to build anymore. And you, you got to a point where you just couldn't uh, didn't really have a program. You didn't have a part. They were cannibalizing uh, one one vehicle to to another in order to keep flying. So it really was not a practical program. So the point is, it wasn't it wasn't uh, canceled because it wasn't safe. It was canceled because it wasn't reliable. And you can't have a reusable vehicle. that's not reliable because the cost of reusability, cost cost of uh, unreliability, is too high. If you if you intend to keep your vehicle. This is the crew from Columbia. Now, a point I like to make if somebody on my blog once said, uh, you know, if we wanted to show that we were serious about space, you would set aside something like Arlington and say, this is where all the people who are going to die opening up this frontier are going to be interred. Now, NASA actually does have something like that down at the Cape. It's the uh, Space Mirror Memorial, and on it are the names of people who have died space or get it, trying to get into space. And there's room for playing more on it. But it's, it's important to recognize that we do, we are going to lose people. And it's unrealistic to think that we're not. Recording in progress. Now, this was pretty spectacular. We didn't really learn about it until the 90s at the Soviet Union. fell, so We got access to a lot of documents. But uh, it was a uh, explosion in Baikonur of a, not still not clear if it was supposed to, I think it was supposed to be a Mars probe. But they had, the, it was caused by, a, uh, everybody, lots of people around on the pad at the time. So it killed a lot of people. Uh, it happened because there was a timer uh, that went off prematurely, and ignited the second stage. That's, that's how how they're stating that. But the Soviets lost people. These these three died when uh, the valve uh, didn't stay uh, stayed open on entry before before they got into the atmosphere and evacuated, and they didn't have suits. So that's the title, of, basically the title of my book. The Safe is not an option. And it's not doesn't justify to space. It applies to life. There is no safe. This side of the dirt. Every every decision you make, every act you take, carries some kind of risk. You, know, you don't know that the next breath you take is going to be have cyanide in it. But it doesn't mean to stop breathing. Now, Hubble Hubble was an interesting case where it had to be serviced, but they didn't. And this was after after uh, Columbia. And they didn't want to. It, people don't realize if Columbia had gone to ISS, uh, they it, it would have been okay. They could have inspected it. They could have decided, well, it's not safe to bring this thing home. And we'll send it away, hang out there, send up another shuttle. But they didn't go to, weren't going to ISS. They were just in a, probably in a 28 degree orbit, just due east out of the Cape. And, mm-hmm. and they were doing science experiments and other things that didn't. Have anything to do with the space station. So they, they had no place to go. They had no safe haven up there. And so because of that, and Hubble's in that same orbit, uh, they didn't want to, Sean O'Keefe, who was the NASA administrator during when Columbia happened, you know, didn't want to have to tell any more families that uh, you know, their loved ones were killed in space shuttle. So he thought it was too risky to send somebody up to fix the, the Hubble. And he canceled canceled the rescue mission. And of course, there was a huge uproar from the astronomy community about that because Hubble's been giving us a lot of good uh, data and still is. And then Mike Griffin came in in 2005 and reversed that. Uh, and Some people argue, well, for the cost of that mission and you know, considering the risk, uh, we probably could have built a better... Space telescope and launched then to do that rescue mission. Uh, but again, it's the, kind of an emotional thing and an irrational thing, but people said, no, we, we want to fix up. Uh, so they reversed the decision and they did end up flying. It was one of those times when which the astronauts, the ones who were scheduled for the mission, actually did recognize and say, yeah, sometimes we have to risk our risk lives to make progress. I do this one hand. Oh, that's good. Um, so anyway, uh, that's, that's the kind of uh, risk and reward that NASA has to do and has to do more of. Uh, That's just a picture of the deep field. I just told that story. Yeah, so as I said, shuttle shuttle was canceled because it wasn't reliable. uh, There was too many compromises that had to be made because of the budget situation that they had in developing it in the 70s. And the other problem but uh, it, was, it wasn't fully reusable, it was only partially reusable. Um, and ironically, the, part, uh, the parts that weren't reusable caused both accidents. In the case of, the, of Challenger, it was the SRBs, they, they say they reuse them, well, they don't think they really reuse them. They rebuild them. Uh, you know, basically, you, you get back, to, they got back the uh, segments, you know, empty, empty segments, and they have to put them back together with the field joints. And, and report. Uh, so I've become more rebuildable than, than reusable. But, that, but one of the failure, one of those joints is what uh, destroyed Challenger. And in the case of uh, Columbia, it was the external tank because the, the vehicle wasn't designed to be hit by ice as it was taking off. So in neither case was the orbiter, the reusable part, the cause of the accident. So to me, that sort of validates it. Usability is a good idea if Elon hasn't already done that abundantly over the last decade or so. So, with space station, we had, had some interesting issues in terms of safety. Yeah, we had, we almost, I shouldn't say almost lost space station, but um, in 2011, about a dozen years ago there was a failure of the Soyuz uh, on a cargo mission. And it was, it was kind of a complex situation because they had, you have to understand until crew dragon started flying a few years ago, they couldn't have more than six crew on the station because they only had, because they insisted on having lifeboats for everybody and lifeboats were basically Soyuz capsules. They had to have two Soyuz at the station at all times. And so as a result of that failure, they had to delay another Soyuz launch until they could figure out what, why it had failed. And, and they got in a situation where they had to go down to a single crew, because they didn't have a lifeboat for uh, only three on, on the station, because they didn't, didn't have lifeboat for them. And at one time, they actually contemplated maybe abandoning the station if they couldn't uh, get things going in time, which could have been catastrophic, because the station is not designed to be flown without crew. All kinds of things could go wrong with it that you might not be able to recover from if there's nobody up there to maintain it. But the other thing to understand about station is, uh, and most people don't realize it, but of those six people that were crewed with the station there, uh, five of them were keeping the station, which meant only there was only one person available for research. We were only getting if research is essentially the reason we built it but We were only getting one person here per year. And if they, when they went to seven, that meant that they doubled productivity of the ISS. So if you think, okay, suppose they were working on some kind of drug and it, it turned out it would save thousands of lives, maybe millions, but they didn't discover it because they had only had one researcher working. They didn't, they didn't have enough people to come up with that. And the reason that they wouldn't have done that was because they were afraid of risking a crew person. That they, wouldn't, they wouldn't have lifeboats for six, they didn't want to have seven, even though the station from when it went operational in the early aughts was it uh, could handle the life support system, could handle four, seven people four on the uh, US side and three on the Soviet side, the Russian side. Uh, but what we went without that extra person for years until we could have, until we got Crew Dragon flying, which could bring back seven people. So that's the cost of risk aversion. Now, compare it to what we do at the the South Pole at uh, Emerson Scott Research Station. People winter over there, and they cannot get out during the winter. There's no way to evacuate them, because the weather is just, uh, the winds and the cold and everything, there's no vehicles, uh, we can just get them in there. In fact, people have gotten sick. Uh, Jerry Nelson, Nielsen uh, came down with, the, she was a physician, fortunately, uh, I think she was the, she was the physician, and she got breast cancer, and they did manage to airdrop some medicine to her, but she couldn't be evacuated until, until the spring, and uh, so, but she did survive, and she did later die, but, but she lived several years after, coming back from Antarctica. but. Uh, Is we don't have lifeboats for people down there. And I suppose you could say, well, NSF should spend billions of dollars developing something that can get into that station in the winter. But they don't do that because it makes no sense. But that's the attitude that we have to a space station. Okay, I'm just going to skip through these. So on the very first flight of, drag, of, of Cargo Dragon, Ken Bowersock, my point is, he, well, he said you could have could have safely flown that mission. Um, he said it would have been a nice ride. It, you know, it went up, did a few orbits, came down, landed in the ocean, uh, all within. The, the, the biggest difference between uh, that, I mean, they made a lot of improvements when they went to Crew Dragon, but the fundamental difference was they put in a life support system thermal management, and, and uh, you know, air, that sort of thing. But the point is, if it had been important to get to ISS, they could have done it with the, with Cargo Dragon. But it was important, it was more, uh, they weren't, you know, they it, it should have been important because we are giving, we gave Putin millions, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars during that time period, from when we retired the shuttle in 2011 until Crew Dragon was flying, and it wouldn't have been nice to stop that sooner than we did. Now, in 2009, there, there, uh, Obama kind of inherited a problem called Constellation. It was it was slipping more than a year per year, and they were trying to decide what to do with it. And so they put together a, a commission led by Norm Augustine, who had done been the head of such a commission prior to that. But he's he's famous in the industry for a book that he wrote back in the '80s called Augustine's Laws, which I highly highly recommend. It's still <laughs> very relevant; hasn't changed much, as is unfortunately my book. Um, so so they had to t- 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 say, what are we going to do with With Ares 1, Ares 5, and Altair and Orion, and and they recommended what the Obama administration did, which was to uh, develop commercial capability of getting people into space. And this is also something important uh, because this hasn't really been stated explicitly uh, in NASA. But if you're not Going, If you're not going to expand humans into the solar system, stop wasting money sending them into space at all. Uh, But the Congress didn't like it because it didn't necessarily send uh, the taxpayer money to the right zip codes. they, They wanted to stick with what they had and that's how SLS and Orion survived. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on SLS, uh, except the main point about it is that it's really a remarkably insane program. It's like fractally it's nuts. Any any level of what you look at, it, it makes no sense. They, they took engines that were designed to be reusable and they figured out how to throw them away, for example. Um, they're putting, up, putting things up on, you know, they didn't learn any lessons from the shuttle in terms of using solid boosters for a human vehicle, and and it flies so rarely that in between flights you're going to forget how to fly That you can't cannot, cannot have a safe system with the kind of tempo that you have with SLS. It's sort of like it's that time of year, right? You go get out your Christmas lights and you dig them out, you untangle them, figure out which ones work, which ones don't. You know, it's like flying something every two years, just sort of like that. I'm not sure exactly, it's a hard chart to read, so I'm not gonna talk about it. But it was basically, the reason it's called the Senate Law System was it was designed by two senators, one of whom is now currently the administrator of NASA. And I won't I don't know whether to talk about the Apollo Cargo cold or not. In the during after World War II, or during World War II, uh, all these the Micronesian Islands, you know, were kind of invaded by all these, these British and Americans. They would come in and they'd clear jungle, clear out a land strip, these giant silver birds would come in bearing mana from heaven, you know, cigarettes, candy canned goods, all this stuff. And then a couple of years and this is a, the first contact. This is like a pre-industrial civil society. It's the first contract with modern industrial civilization. Right. So they after that they all left after the war. So they said, they kind of shake what happened? So they decided to try to replicate. It. They would build uh, airplanes like this, they would build, build thatch control towers in hopes that the big silver birds would come back. So that was called a cargo quote by the anthropologist. Uh, this is a quote uh, from Jeff Grayson, who was at that, that time he was CEO of XCorp. Uh, and, and it wasn't just him that said this. It was he and Sally Ride said this in a press conference. That if if you just gave, uh, and, and when he says the program, he's talking about consolation. Like even, even if you, they had it, all the development costs behind them, they still couldn't afford to fly it with the budget that the Congress was willing to give uh, Fortunately or unfortunately, Congress is, was willing to give them enough to keep everybody working. So I already mentioned how uh, you know you need to fly more often to have a safe vehicle, and this again this is a ten-year-old slide, but it's it's kind of held out. We know we know we spent over twenty billion dollars on the program now, and we got one flight out of it. So you have to fly a lot to actually get demonstrated reliability. And I'll talk about this more after after this presentation when I go into the last few slides. Uh, but you're not you're you're not flying enough to maintain proficiency, and that's those both those are and proficiency have implications for safety. And Steve well, Steve Squires pointed this out also several years ago. Uh, so it took us well, over two and a half years. To get back to flight after Challenger, and almost as long to get back to flight after Columbia, and uh, again, that just emphasizes well, why we had could not not keep flying shuttle. And I made the point earlier about how rapidly the P-51 was developed—117 uh, days—and <coughs> we just can't do that anymore. And the Air Force is starting to worry about us. Space Force is starting to worry about it—that we can't. And it's not just the Navy's for too. We can't build ships as fast because they've been shutting down all our shipyards. We can't keep up with China. So the question comes down to how do we value human life? How much is it worth? The government actually has numbers like that that they use for coming up with regulations for, say, for auto... You know, I don't know what the current number is. I think, uh, I think it's got to be. It, it's not a million. I don't think it's on probably on the order of a hundred thousand, maybe a couple hundred. Uh, how much? How much? You know, they want auto. They should make automakers spend, you know, to reduce the number of people killed in cars. And the same thing with aviation. And. So does the flies become more valuable when you put them in the air? Or they become more valuable when you put them into space? It's not fair why. You could say that, yeah, okay, astronauts have more value than other people because we invest a lot of money in training. Right? And, they're, and they're harder to find. They're, they're you know, two-sigma individuals. See. But you still have to say, how much should we be willing to spend to save and not kill an astronaut? And and the way NASA behaves, basically, it says, their price is no lot. they will spend as much as it takes to make sure that nobody ever dies," which is not how you advance any industry. So that's Mike Rowe, you know who he is. Uh, he's kind of ranted about this stuff uh, himself, talking about how if. The, if safety and I say if safety is your highest priority that says actually doing what you're trying to do is a lower one so that's unfortunately history and we've seen dragon to true worked again this is a ten year old chart this is the state of the industry in roughly 2013 and at the kind of the point here is we're sort of at the, 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 the where aviation was in the 1920s in terms of knowing how to design space vehicles uh, in the 1920s they didn't know how many wings a plane should have they didn't know whether the, the control surface should be on the front or the back you know, it took took a while and it took a lot of experience and it took a lot of accidents to figure all that stuff out and, uh, and every faa regulation aviation regulation is written in blood but we're not doing that in space and we have to, but Elon is starting to, he's doing it at least not with people, but he's willing to break, to fly things and break them as what went wrong and fly them again. So the Commercial Space Flight Federation was heavily involved in, in writing that, You know, coming up with that learning period. And in fact, there's still our arena who's the head of it is still testified before Congress recently that, yes, we have to. It, it expired in October. They extended it in the latest uh, uh, omnibus, but that was only through until January. And the industry is still arguing we need to keep that moratorium in place. But others, people at the Rand Corporation and some other places have been arguing, no, we need to start regulating. And, and I, I will sufficiently disagree with that. And so the question is, and people always say, "Well, we we have to regulate because if we ever have an accident, it's going to destroy the industry," which I think is nonsense. But we did we we are an informed consent regime, and that that means that you you tell people who are flying, here's all the ways you can have a bad day on this vehicle, and then you decide whether you want to fly or not. And that's how people are flying with Blue Origin, how people are flying with Virgin Galactic. It's also how, it's how people are flying at uh, these commercial flights on, on crew Dragon. But no, accidents don't kill industry. Yeah, people still take cruises after the Passport Concordia. Kind of so what, what is the role of the government? Uh, it's not regulation yet. Uh, but at some point, there was an interesting article in Space News uh, a couple weeks ago, I think, saying, yeah, we do need rescue capability. Uh, this is not the official. The official model of the Coast Guard is Semper Paratus, always be prepared. Uh, but the informal motto is, motto is, you have to go out, we don't have to come back. And we need something like a, a Space Guard, an equivalent of a Coast Guard, we need a Space Guard that has the same kind of attitude. And, and they'll procure their own vehicles, or, or they'll just go out to commercial industries you know, sell them custom vehicles, which is what they do with their ships. You know, it'd be nice if you could actually have it as a, uh, a uniform service, like the Coast Guard, that would be an adjunct to the Space Force, and it would, it would you know, become part of it in times of war, just as the Coast Guard does to the Navy. Um, but that's the kind of attitude we have to have. Send people out, recognize their risks, try to mitigate them by having and Possible to go out and rescue them if they get in trouble. Cool. So I think that might be the last chart. Yeah, and the book is available, still available. Uh, it's it's print on demand at Amazon. If anybody wants to buy. It. Yeah, I think that is the last one. Especially the other. Yeah, you want the previous Yeah, I want the other PowerPoint. So this, these are some charts I threw together yesterday because I wanted to talk about more detail about stuff that wasn't in this original uh, original briefing that was written by somebody else ten years ago. Uh, but uh, NASA's approach to safety is, is fundamentally irrational. Uh, it's it's driven by politics more than you know any kind of sane systems engineering. And I have a few slides that kind of goes into the, into these details, but basically, it's they have unrealistic goals in terms of loss of probability of loss of crew. Um, I want to say instinct for the capillary as opposed to the jugular. I mean, they 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 will focus resources on some aspect that's not that dangerous to begin with, while ignoring much more hazardous things. Um, and and they because they do things so things so seldom. You know they spent 10 years, more than 10 years, depends on how you define it, when they started SLS because it was really like the next. They'd already started a star at Ares 5, which was SLS, is sort of a descendant of. But it's been, you know, it was over a decade to develop it without a single flight, and all they could do in, in terms of assessing reliability was do, doing PRAs, not rather than flight experience. Uh, Elon has flight experience. SpaceX has flown. I forget how many now, but hundreds, I think hundreds of flights, and they have a demonstrated biasing probability that reliability is very high. And and the other thing is, you'll see these detailed PRAs, and they'll have like five digits of precision on something one of the factors of which they don't know, they barely know within an order of magnitude. And you know that's the first thing to teach them in engineering school. You know, don't use more figures of. of uh, Decision than you have. And they have an arbitrary loss of crew requirement, I think it was 271 to 270, I think it was for commercial crew. Uh, where's that number come from? Uh, Phil McAllister told me sometime, one time, uh, you don't want to know where that number comes from. But I'm sure it has a lot of astronaut input. But the point is that it's arbitrary and it's unverifiable. You know, how do you verify that that vehicle has a 1 in 270 probability velocity? So I apologize for the quality of this chart. It a figure in the book that I had to blow up, but it kind of describes where sort of where these numbers come from. Uh, so on the left, you got crew uh, safety per launch, so 1 in 100, 1 in 1,000. Turned out that the shuttle was about 1, one in 100. Just uh, demonstrated. We I mean, lost that many crew out of how many we flew. Um, you know, one in ten is probably that's like Russian roulette. But you might still do that if the mission's important. If you're sending people out to uh, prevent an asteroid from hitting the Earth, you might send dozens of people out knowing that only a few of them will make it through. But that's what you do when things are important. Uh, so, th- so the target was one in a 1,000. And uh, this was sort of the justification about why we had to have a cruise escape system. And again, this is it's an, uh, thinking from the 60s. In Apollo, we have to do everything the way we did in Apollo. That even, you know, when Mike Griffin announced Constellation in 2005, he called it Apollo on steroids because the problem is we got to the moon with Apollo. We did it the worst possible way because we were in a hurry. Uh, but somehow it's become the paradigm, it's become, it's the existence proof and there's it can't be done any other way. And but another point that he kind of changed his mind because the question is, uh, we don't have uh, rescue capability for a satellite. We'll put up a billion dollar national security asset on these rockets. And, and one time Griffin, uh, prior to, Becoming administrator, he said, you know, he has asked about if we how can we fly humans on Atlas and Delta, Delta 4, Atlas 5. And he said, Well, I can't think of anything I would do to those rockets to make them any more reliable, because they have to fly a billion dollar satellites. Well, that's it, gotta it's gotta be a reliable rocket by definition, whether you want to call it human-rated or not. The only thing that makes a vehicle human-rated. This for it to have an abort system, and for the, the, for the rocket to be able to tell the abort system it's time to abort, that's what that's what human-rated rocket. Because people say, "Well, Falcon Heavy isn't human-rated." Well, yeah, if you put a crew Crew Dragon on top of it, it's human-rated. Okay, this is all this. So this is what what was driving, trying to get to these numbers, trying to get to minimize probably the loss of crews, and which we have to have. Yeah, we have to have one of these. We have to have an abort system. Now, uh, I was doing some uh, contract work for Orbital sciences at the time. They were the contractor before North Department. They were the contractor for the uh, uh, for the LAS. And I was doing hazard analysis. And we found that there were about 60 hazards on that thing that could give you a bad day on a nominal flight. So in other words, and one of like, the most obvious examples um, failure, failure to jettison. If you don't get rid of that thing, uh, when you're done with it, you're going to die because it can't enter that way, the parachutes can't open. And so you could have a, a flight that's going perfectly fine, except your abort system, even though you didn't need it. And it was never obvious to me, I never saw the analysis that said it actually improves safety, overall safety, but this doesn't introduce more hazards than it removes. And I think the reason is, I don't think anybody ever did it, because basically, I think the thinking was, well, it won't look like a pile if it doesn't have one, and I don't want to go to Congress and explain why somebody died, because it didn't have an abort system not occurring to them, they might have to go to Congress and tell them why somebody died, because it did. Uh, but here's another point about the misallocation of resources. And by the way, that, that thing weighed 14,000 pounds. It doesn't it doesn't cost you 14,000 pounds of payload, because you don't take it all the way to order, but it still costs you a lot of payload, and, and expense, and cost. And you throw it away every time. You hope to throw it away every time. You don't even want to use it. It's a, it's a very expensive insurance policy. Uh, but this is a lunar mission. Um, so basically NASA went and they, they looked at how are all the ways you can, you can die and what your probability of doing so for each phase of going to the moon and coming back. So the biggest part of that pie you can see is you're most likely one in four chance of dying on the moon, doing something on the moon. Uh, landing is a danger. The other, the big one, is is returning. And at the, the time, they were calling the crew exploration vehicle. which is always a silly name. I thought you're not exploring crew. Uh, but that was that was prior to it being named Iran and They're calling it the CTV. And so you have a 20% chance of dying on descent. And you have about 17% chance of not doing the proper inj- injection into Earth. But so if you look at all those, ascent is 3%. 3% of the total risk of a mission to the moon back is on the rocket going into space. And yet they were spending billions to make that safe, while they weren't spending anything on anything else. They weren't spending any money on a lander. They, they were spending very little. I guess they were, they were doing that CEB, which became Orion. But but it, it seemed like a gross misallocation resource to, to worry so much about how to get into space when we know how to do that. We've been doing it for 60 years and not be spending any money on how to make the rest of it safe. And that might be it. I just thought I want to get a little bit more into the engineering. Uh, since this is AAA. But that's basically what I, I mean. I could talk a lot more, obviously. Uh, but i certainly happy to take questions now. I think there's a best chart. Yeah. yeah. This is a, there's just three charts I built yesterday in anticipation of this event.
0: So any questions for
1: folks here? It sounds like you're advocating a Coast Guard. Can you speak a little bit? Sure. It sounds like you're advocating for a Coast Guard. A Space Guard, yes. Yeah. uh, I either look up Google, uh, go to the new I don't know if you're familiar with the New Atlantis. It's a quarterly journal of technology and society and ethics. And I've written many long essays there. but up 12 years ago, a colleague of mine, a business business partner, uh, wrote uh, an article called I think it's called A Coast Guard for Space. So I highly recommend it because he describes you know how that would work, why it's necessary, how it would improve things. Uh, but we do need some sort of uh, something to perform constabulary duties. You know, go out and inspect the ships. You know, up to spec? Do they have do they have uh, proper Rescue, things are, you know, the same sort of things the Coast Guard does down here. We should be doing in space, and and I would, I could give a whole other talk um, on on the subject of why it, the best place to base that would be an equatorial low Earth orbit. Absolutely, because if that, then you have access mm-hmm. to anywhere. But it's the most responsive possible place in system in space to be to be able to get anywhere yeah. quickly. And the only problem with that is that we don't have any equatorial launch sites. But I think in the future, French, yeah. that's four degrees off. Yeah. It's supposed Plus. to do a dog leg. Yeah. But that's not ours, it's France. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But I think the solution is going to be when Starship starts flying, they'll start doing sea launch because they'll want to do that anyway from point to point. Yeah. And so you do that from the equator, they'll launch, launch uh, from one platform land the booster on one downrange maximize your payload that have to fly back uh, and that and, and itself itself varies you just fuel it up on the on the one that you landed it on and fly back by right, so so a good bit extent, that's a whole separate subject but i do think that that's the future most things should be most things that don't have to meet some other inclination should be uh, in equatorial yeah it sounds perfect yeah do you need a maintenance for yeah, so so I, I highly recommend reading that uh, that essay. Because it, it kind of lay, it lays out all the issues, the problems we have with the current structure between DOD and of course this a written for Space Force, which really isn't a force, it's a it's a core, let's be honest. Uh, like the Army Air, like the Army Air Corps was before it became the Air Force. But Trump wanted to call it have a space force, so they call it a space force, even though it's uh, but this, so this is all before that. And things, a lot of people got confused. There was a lot of discussion about this in the last decade or last decade. People got confused about the difference between whether the a space guard. And, and the Space Force confused it even more by calling, calling them guardians. other
3: yes uh, I I have a question uh, that was a very interesting uh, retrospective uh, presentation thank you uh, my question is how do you think uh, risk assessment uh, will be sort of uh uh, quanti- uh quantitated in terms of uh, uh, the volume of uh, of crews I mean in the in, even to today the, the maximum number of, of uh, passengers or any one uh, uh, mission will be I don't know maybe uh at best uh, uh, half a dozen, something like that. Uh, not even that uh, with current technology. But now you, you're, you're talking about uh, Starship and and projected uh, passengers of maybe up to uh, maybe a hundred passengers. And so, how do you think that uh, volume of passengers might affect uh, sort of the evaluation of uh, risk assessment when you increase the number of potential? Well, obviously, the bigger
1: the vehicle, the higher the loss if you. Everybody on it dies. Uh, I, I don't think and Elon himself has said, you know, we're not gonna fly people on this thing until we've flown it a lot. I mean, he's you know, he wants to deliver Starlinks with it, he wants it, he wants but I think at some point we have to get kind of more in an airliner mode. Um, he's gonna he's gonna have one reliable vehicle. And I would postulate that SpaceX has the most experienced rocket design team in the world right now and i think they're they're going to fly that a lot i think people don't understand is that the the big advantage of reusability is hey you can do incremental flight tests with it we you know we have seen people I mean, now in china they're building hoppers uh, uh what's the name stoke not stoke there's another there's another company up in washington that's building a fully reusable system uh, and they're they're hopping they just did a hop the other day so you can do incremental flight tests with it and you can fly you can fly every day as opposed to expendable. it's a very expensive thing you fly a punch and you throw it away and you hope you get from telemetry how, what didn't happen didn't work but when you fly something over and over and over again you can get it to reliability that's fairly going to be fairly comparable to airliners so and and you know we don't uh, getting back to the abort situation, abort system, do we really need an abort system? You know, we don't give airline passengers parachutes. Because it, it just doesn't make sense. It adds weight, they wouldn't know how to use them, they wouldn't it out. Uh, at some point we're gonna say, why are we uh, wasting money and weight on these abort systems? When you look at SpaceX's Falcon 9 record, for example. And there are plenty of people be willing to fly. I would, I'd be willing to fly without an abort system. You know that's because you know space is hazardous this this is the you know this is the harshest frontier we have ever faced in our history and you know we came down from since we came down from uh, the trees out of the savannah but we kept on moving we moved crow we went to the arctic we figured out how to go to all these other places okay now we're going someplace where there's no air Uh, and how do we do that well we'll, the same way we did it conquered the arctic we did the technology of fire furs, weapons. So we'll be doing the same thing in space, but we have to accept that people are gonna die when you open up the frontier. So I, I don't know if I answered your question or not. Uh, obviously it's a, it's, it's a bigger disaster when you kill a lot of people when you kill a few. But when I would say with risk risk assessment, that, that's the other thing that drives me crazy about NASA Is They say, this is the probability loss of crew. We, Want to design to this. And we want to cue and rate it, whatever that will mean in the future. I think it's an obsolete concept from the 60s myself. And I wish people would, I wish you could purge that phrase from our vocabulary. But you should, you should don't do a PRA and say, did we get to this goal? It depends on what you're doing. Again, if you're going out to save Earth from an asteroid, you're going to take, be willing to take a lot more risk than if you're doing kids' science fair experiments. They were doing on Columbia, right? So for any individual mission, and I'd like to get out of this notion of missions as well, uh, it's just a place where people are doing stuff. Uh, so, so for any given activity that you need to perform, you say, "Here's what the probability of me of my having a bad day, permanent bad day, and am, am I willing to risk that for what it is I'm trying to accomplish?" But NASA is not allowed to do that by Congress, even though they sort of did with Hubble. That was one, one of those rare instances where they actually did that.
0: Okay, so AC, is that okay for you?
3: Uh, yeah, that, that sort of has a and, and I'm sorry, my name, my name is Adrian, and uh, my apologies for not uh, mentioning my name. Uh, thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much, AC. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Martin, McLaughlin, do you want to speak out your
2: question? Yeah. Okay. Hi. Um, I've uh, heard you give this talk before, and it's uh, and actually, I was in attendance at the uh, Augustine Commission uh, uh, meeting in Huntsville. When Jeff Grayson uh, made that statement that you had, and um, I couldn't agree more about SLS. Uh, it's uh, incredible. Uh, but um, I've been exposed slightly. Not I don't know a lot about it, but I've been exposed to the Navy Subsafe program. Now I'm wondering what you think of that, uh,
1: if you're aware of it. I'm aware that that's all I am. I don't know, oh, yeah. I don't know anything about it. Um, okay. But I'm sure there are lessons to be learned. Particularly yeah,
2: we, uh, I was at Northrop Grumman when we were competing for CB, And we, uh, at the time, we had just acquired the uh, uh, bunch of the shipbuilding. So we had an opportunity to have some of those guys come in and talk to us about it. But it was—it was basically uh, um, trying to figure out, you know, if something went wrong, how could you get back to the surface? It was their focus.
1: Yeah, you know, there were there were stories. And in fact, I think Rob White wrote a book about that, about World War II. It was a fictional, fiction. but basically, you know, he, they open the hatch, and you just make sure you don't hold your breath. <laughs> just let the bubbles flow as you rise. That depends on how deep you are, obviously. But that brings up another interesting point that, in terms of what's going on right now in terms of regulations, you know, there's this kind of battle right now going on between the White House and Congress over who who should be regulating orbital activities. And and uh, the White House Space Council just came out with a proposal and said, well, FAA should be put in charge of, orbital transportation, on-orbit transportation, but, but give commerce uh, regulating facilities, you know, like the commercial space stations, And and uh, I disagree with that. I don't, I think, I wrote an article, I think it was in the New Atlantis uh, several years ago, called Keep FAAs Head in the Clouds. Uh, I don't think they belong, I don't think they should be regulating anything in space. And I do, and I do want, we do, and, that, and so Congress pushed back on that, Senate pushed back on that this week. Saying we we don't we want to have a one-stop shop uh, for people to go to to do things beyond the atmosphere and I agree with that and I think it should be commerce uh, commercial space Light Federation Korea thinks it should be commerce uh, I think that's kind of the way that Congress is, is leaning uh, Rich Bello, who is head of the office of commercial space um, He's, he's focused right now on sustainability and debris and that kind of thing, which is an important thing. But he needs he needs a bigger remit. He needs a bigger budget. Uh, but but also so,
2: remember, though, that uh, you know there's
1: there's overlap
2: because even um, even with Starship, uh, it could be
1: that their biggest market is point-to-point delivery on Earth. If that happens, that would be an FAA responsibility.
2: Then now you got a mix, you know. You got FAA doing that part, and whoever this other group is doing the orbital part or the in-space part. Uh, I don't know. I would. It'd be nice to have one. And I've worked a lot on space planes. And there, there's a lot of overlap too. If you're trying to land on a commercial runway, do you have to deal with FAA for that? But you have to deal with somebody else for orbital work. And
1: well, we're de- we're dealing with with mixing, you know launch in airspace already, in, in fact, the aviation industry, airline industry is pretty unhappy about having to divert or wait or, do, you know, go around the Cape when they're doing a launch and they're coming up with ways to mitigate that, minimize that. Uh, but, but obviously integrating, air, you know, space with the air airspace, um, you know, is, is an important thing to do and there have been a lot of papers written on it. But the other thing that's happening is in the midst of all this is that, you know, NASA wants to certify. In the same sense that they certified uh, SpaceX, they certify commercial crew, they want to certify these uh, what they call them, commercial LEO uh, CLDs, commercial LEO. I forget what the D is, but it, the commercial space stations, which they have to have come up with an acronym for. Of course, they commercial space station, but they want to certify them for NASA use, and I think that's nuts. I don't, and that's that's way out of NASA's lane. Uh, NASA is not a regulatory agency, and they shouldn't be certifying any anything commercial. That, that was a mistake, I think. It was, it was a bad precedent to let them do that with commercial crew. And and I've actually been talking to Axiom and, and uh, Orville Reef and Bass and others, saying, look, we need to have a united industry. Uh, industry has to come up with what I call building codes. You know, we need to develop our own standards, working with ANSI, and and other organizations like that, NIST, uh, which again brings the Department of Commerce in, right, uh, to, to do this ourselves and, and not let NASA say no. Because if, if NASA's is certifying things and that says, well, you weren't certified by NASA, so it's puts you at a competitive disadvantage. In theory, maybe. If people believe NASA certification's a good thing or necessary. So that's kind of a valve that I'm working on right now. Certainly, yeah. Uh certification is important. That's, you
2: know, I don't think, um, you know, commercial airlines are not informed to risk. Uh, you have certified vehicles. Um, no. And I think it has some time. Um, the tremendous improvement in airline safety is, is undeniable. And a lot of that was
1: due to the rigorous certification process. But NASA didn't do that. No, no, no. no. And, yeah. and if, but I don't, but I don't think FAA is the appropriate place to be certifying space facilities and their facilities. I, I think we should be treating them more like buildings. You know, NASA doesn't say, well, I can't send somebody to the Sahara for this conference in Vegas because we haven't certified the Sahara for NASA use. You know, they just say, you meet local building, building codes? yeah okay so NASA sends their employees there we ought to be doing the same thing in space I mean space people don't understand how different space is from aviation uh, in terms of you don't have the kinds of, of it's different kinds of problems and things happen more slowly there which is a lot of reasons a lot of people think and it's been argued in science fiction conventions for decades right the the, the rank structure in the space force shouldn't be the air force rank structure should be naval. because can, a lot of space operations be very much more similar to naval operations than they are to air. but uh, anyway these are all very you know current topics right now I've, I've been waiting a long time to see them actually becoming things that congress is actually talking about and i'm glad to see it happening and i want to try to keep moving the conversation along in a useful direction that lets us open up space Rapidly. And you know, Gwen keeps saying, and I agree with her, that people do not understand the implications of Starship. That even people in the industry, it's hard for people to get their heads around a, a vehicle that, particularly if it's going to Equatorial Leo, they'd be flying every hour. You know, there's no launch window to, to the equator. If, if you want to do single-over rendezvous, you got a window every hour and a half. All right? So, it's it's just a, it's 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 like the transcontinental railroad of space. It's just a, a mass pipeline into orbit, and just people a few people are starting to think about what could we do with that. It's not just putting up a satellite, uh, you know, putting a satellite on a launch system, launching it and it go to where it's supposed to go and, and throw the vehicle. It's 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 just a mass pipeline to and from orbit, and everything that's going into it or coming back to space ought to be going through that orbit. In my opinion. And I think that I think that ultimately was what would happen. Certainly an equatorial
2: orbit would be a low Earth equatorial orbit would be a great place for a space domain awareness constellation. Yeah. You could look up and you could look down. I mean you could look both hemisp- hemispheres and you could see everybody. But uh, since Sea Launch has gone kind of out of business, you can't get to equatorial orbit until, yeah, like you said, well, uh, SpaceX does it. Yeah. Well, we have to do
1: that. I call I call ELEO Earth's Natural Harbor. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I agree.
0: Yeah. Okay, um, looks like uh, Mr. John Decker, you posted a link. Do you want to speak out? Yeah, that, that was me actually. Was say, oh, <laughs> Martin was asking about the essay, the oh, Coast Guard essay. So I was just oh, filling yeah. that in for Martin. Very good. Uh, so, AC, I saw you earlier, you posed a question about Osprey. Do you want to uh, elaborate on that?
1: Oh, he, he just wants me to add, add a slide of the Osprey, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah
3: in regards to the uh, the recent uh, sort of uh uh accidents and the uh and the uh the, the uh the aircraft being grounded uh, and and I just I just thought that might have uh, might have added to your your uh risk assessment uh sort of uh, uh presentation in in terms of uh how that generally affects uh military operations I I live about half a mile away from Miramar air base here in San Diego and so I uh, they fly over my house all the time. So I'm quite familiar with it. Uh, so I was just curious, uh, uh, you know, I thought it would be a, certainly a, a modern day sort of a, uh, uh, example.
1: Yeah, well, as I say, this, this briefing is literally 10 years old and I, you know, I just, I didn't even try to update it to current events. But as I say, it's still surprising how much hasn't changed. But it's also how much has, I mean, SpaceX has changed the world. And I don't think, it's almost like with a lot of the uh, the industry, it's sort of like the dinosaurs. They don't, the asteroids hit and they don't realize it yet. And if you don't figure out how you're going to operate in this new world, you're not going to make it. It's really just hard
2: to believe that ULA and um, ESA are developing brand new
1: Expendable. Yeah, I mean, I I told Clay Maury years ago that Ariane Six was obsolete before it will be obsolete before it lost. and then he went to the <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess at some point he realized I was right.
0: Okay, uh, Charlie Colonel Bono, uh, you post uh, something on chat. Do you want to speak out? Maybe it's not there. Right? There's a question here uh, in person here.
1: I think he was just pointing out where James Dean died. Sorry, hi. Uh,
4: sorry, Kufran Syed. Can
0: you say your name?
4: Yeah, uh, Kufran Syed. I'm an uh, emergency medicine doctor training in space medicine. Uh, so you talked about NASA being sort of pretty risk averse. Do you feel the same thing is true for the FAA? Because, um, as I understand it, it seems like the FAA is sort of, you know, fairly reasonable, from, from as an outsider, a fairly reasonable sort of approach to regulation in the sense that, oh, you know, you want to build an experimental vehicle and you're only going to kill yourself, okay. You know, you want to learn to fly, put your family in there, well, you know, there's some requirements, but like, you know, we're not going to be there watching you all the time. If you want to kill yourself, you do it. Uh, you a kill other people, hmm, maybe not. You know, all the way up to, okay, you want to fly, you know civilians on an airliner right. okay now you need 1500 hours and yeah and you know, that's, that yeah. sort of tiered approach it seems quite reasonable like what, what's your sort of take on it with no I, I do
1: think the FAA does a very pretty good job with aviation uh, I wish that they weren't involved with, with launch they didn't used to be that when when we it's aging myself more here but the original commercial space launch act was passed in 1984 and i helped draft that too and and the originally courtney spad was the first head of the office of commercial space transportation and and he reported directly to elizabeth dole you know that office reported directly to the secretary of transportation and it did that up until 1993 when some sort of streamlining government thing uh the Clinton administration, put it under the FAA. And so you had an immediate clash of cultures there. And when I talk about this in the book, I, and, and periodically, I, I know that uh, Jim Bridenstine was recommending this and other people have, and I recommend in the book, that they ought to fix that. They ought, they ought to be moved back. Uh, so it reports that, it become, that it become a politically pointed position, and that's one downside of it. But, but it would report directly to the secretary, and it wouldn't be, uh, the, as I said, I discuss in the book, FAA is, uh, you know, safety is, they used to have a dual role of both promoting safety and promoting the industry. And they lost the promoting the industry role uh, after ValueJet, perhaps in the Everglades back in the late 90s, if you remember that. And and Congress basically said, no, you're going to promote safety here. And, but that's a dip. Diff- but it's the role of, Office of Commercial Space Transportation still, which isn't the they call it, FAAST, but still OCST, is still their role to promote the industry. So they've got a, a clash of cultures there. And that's another reason I think it shouldn't be launch well, shouldn't be empty. It needs to develop on its own more organically, the way aviation did. Because you know we killed a lot of people learning how to fly safely in the twenties, the thirties, the forties. Uh, And and also, the NACA was very helpful uh, in developing that and developing technologies, much more so, more than NASA has since the NACA got absorbed into it, because everything got screwed up by Apollo, and NASA became an operational agency, uh, rather than one that was supposed to be developing technology, for to serve industry needs, which is what the NACA did. So there's, there's lots of things that have gotten broken. <laughs> but in
2: aviation, so much of the development was done with, for military you know, yeah. aircraft.
1: Yeah, I think, you think know, the- it
2: was much harsher environment. I mean, I tell my launch buddies all the time that at least you don't have really smart people trying to shoot at you. You know, it's it's it's, it's really hard to develop a, you know a tactical aircraft.
1: Yeah, and let's hope we don't let them start happening in space, so it's probably inevitable humans being humans. But, the, but that that's what pushed the well, I use the wrong term, but well
2: it pushed the envelope of aviation so hard you know to, for warfare uh, that it made the commercial part you know certainly dragged along behind it pretty uh, well. We don't have that with uh, space.
1: I don't know yeah well it's just the, the peculiar way that space happened initially and then uh, because we were in a hurry to do it to, to get to be able to get satellites into orbit we just we said, well we've got these missiles so let's just put stuff on and stuffing people on top of them which was never a great way to get to space uh, but we got got stuck in a very deep rut for a long time mm-hmm. until. And and when people wouldn't couldn't believe that you could actually reuse a launch system, uh, even though we sort of don't, or you could vertically land money when We demonstrated that 30 years ago, you know, with DCX out of White Sands. And and I'm somebody with money, uh, who wanted to really reduce the cost of getting into space because governments never really been that concerned about that. I said uh, I've been I've done so many transportation studies and it's just taken as a given that we're always going to throw the vehicles away and it's always going to be expensive and can we do can we get higher flight rates can we get can we reduce the cost by half um, you know a point I always make with the E L B program that it doesn't and it's something I discovered in stats was that it doesn't matter what what your vehicle design is if you don't fly and, and you can have a kind of a crappy one, but if it a lot, you really go across. That's how you get cost down by flying a lot. Flight rate is much more important than anything in terms of, of actually increasing access, increasing reliability uh, and reducing costs. And Elon's figured that out and he cleverly figured out how we can do flight tests on operational missions because the customer doesn't care what the first stage does after it separates. Yeah, right.
2: well, so, I agree so- with you a hundred percent, you know, as, as late as 10 years ago, there were serious articles published on that there was zero price launch, launch rate elasticity, and uh, and that going to reusability and lowering the cost would not add to the launch rate. And, yeah. uh, and they're 100% wrong. I mean, that, but but some of that's a little artificial. Uh, Elon is his own customer with the uh, Starlink. And a lot of his missions are, you know, feeding himself where his launches are. But but still, uh, clearly reusability is the way to go. And I think it's also clear, I, I think the vast majority of the mass to orbit will go up on heavy uh, vertical takeoff, vertical landing launchers like, like Falcon 9 or, well, like Space. The Starship. Hopefully, new Glenn comes along and is ready too.
1: Yeah, I've actually seen pictures of it finally in the barn. Have you? Yeah. Just this this week, I think they showed some pieces.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah. So, so maybe maybe next year.
2: And of course, the you know we all we all all those DCX guys, you know, they were the you know existence proof for all of that. And, and uh, but that's yeah. a whole other story of you know why didn't uh, DCX go forward? Instead, we tried to make X33. Uh,
1: yeah, X33 was a, was a disaster. I don't know what Gene Austin was thinking, but that it, you know, it violated Prinell's laws of X planes. You know, yeah. one technology. You're you're testing one technology. You're not testing five. But it, it, what really influenced Elon was Masten, Because, uh, you know, they, they, they did that uh, up, up in Mojave, they did that the flight where they turned the engine off and then they relit and they landed. And John Goff sent the, because he was working at Masten at the time, he sent an, uh, a video of that, SpaceX. And that's when they went, and I've been telling him for quite a while, you're not gonna, enter that booster without slowing it down. You've got to come in hot jets because it kept on breaking up every time you try to bring it in. And you finally figure out, well, this is how we do it. We can do a vertical landing. Yeah, it was amazing that, uh, you know, pulse of
2: the braking was, you know, not even was just written off for decades and decades. It's, you know, you got an atmosphere, you got to use that, you know?
1: Yeah, that's, well, you know, the old, the three rules of design, you know, if you want to uh, cruise, use an air breather, if you want to accelerate, use a rocket, if you want to turn, use a wing.
0: Uh, any more questions here and online? Okay. <coughs> So, um, actually, yeah, so we do have, uh, um, before we end the program, actually, I do have something to say. Uh, right now, actually, our section, you know, AW Sanchez, that's the speaker section, has been um, actually working on several uh, events, several uh, years about this launch safety. And uh, right now, our public policy chair, Mr. Daniel Scalise, uh, he is the um, he's working in the USC Aerospace Safety Department and uh, we are working on a uh, program with USC. I mean, it's not a program, it's an event uh, for launch safety investigation. Uh, so actually we are trying to reach out to people like RAN and uh, people uh, in, in those launch companies. Uh, we are trying to get people together to discuss on this uh, uh, issue. Uh, so actually it has been in progress. So uh, we'll keep working with RAN. Uh, so, um, so on behalf of the Los Angeles Speakers Section, the other way, Los Angeles Speakers Section, we want to present Rand, Mr. Rand Zimber appreciation certificate to thank. Uh, uh, There's a great lecture and uh, uh, wonderful presentation. So uh, let's uh, thank uh, Rand again. Thank you. Yay. Yay. Thank you. Well, uh, As far as uh, we understand, actually, Ren has another lecture can give, so we hope we can work with him uh, for coming up. But again, uh, we'll stay in touch with Mr. Simberg for uh, uh, this, uh, we're working on this uh, launch safety issue. Uh, We are trying to do it at a conference, but uh, we don't know whether we'll reach that scale right away the first time. But we do work on, uh, you know, mini conference or just a meeting to get people together to discuss about it. So uh, thank you so much again for joining today in person online. So uh, people here can continue to network Uh, folks online. If you still want to speak out, you're welcome to do so. So thank you very much again. See you next time. Happy holiday. Happy New Year. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Bye bye.
2: I just wanted everything wrong with SLS lecture. We could just I think that would be really fun. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>